Yeah. Let's kneel together and let's have a, a word of prayer together. Our holy heavenly Father, we come before you and we praise you for, for who and what you are, that you are love. Uh, not this fitful love that we see in the world today, but, but you are agape. You are principled love. And we wish that that love be implanted into our hearts. And so, Father, we pray for the Holy Spirit to come upon us and, and change us, that we may be more and more uh, like Thee, like Jesus, our Savior. And Jesus said, You've seen me, you've seen the Father. And you have that character of love. And, and we wish to be Your people. The people around us who don't know You can see You alive in our, our life. Father, we thank You so much for this Sabbath day, this opportunity we have to come together and, and fellowship together, sing praises to You. Thank You for the wonderful things that You're doing in our life and uh, in the church and with our families and, and in the world, and trying to reach people before it's too late. This conflict has been going on for thousands of years, and we're right down to the end. And so, Father, we, thank, we are thankful that You've protected Your Word, that You've brought us to it, that You've taught us and You're teaching us what love really is. And uh, You showed us there at the cross. You gave Your Son. May we never forget. We pray that you forgive us our sins, Father. And give us of the Spirit to help us to overcome our tendencies and our sins and, and to help others see Jesus. We pray, Lord, as we come before you, that you will be with our families, be with our children and protect them. Guide them. We know by the study of the Word that you never give up, that you go seeking for the lost. And we pray, Lord, that you send angels to surround our families and our children who have gone astray and, and protect them in this time. For the devil wants, wants them dead, essentially. And we wish them to be alive. We pray that you will bind the forces of evil and then woo them as only you can. Lord, we pray that you will be with those in the Philippines. Such devastation. We know from the study of your word that you can make good things out of bad. We pray that you will reach hearts there, that you will heal people, that they may come to know Jesus and the whole world as far as that goes. Father, help us to, to share the influence we have in our, our sphere of the love of Christ. And as we talk today, we look back at those things, your providence in history. May we gain the hope and confidence uh, in Thee that we continue our walk of faith and be strengthened. We thank You, Lord, for hearing this prayer. For I ask it in the blessed name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is so worthy. Amen. As I mentioned earlier, today we're going to be looking at history, how God's hand was in the, well, kind of the founding of this country and, and the providence of God. This is time of year, you know, in this country we have what's called Thanksgiving. And uh, I spoke about this 
oh, many years ago, nine or ten years ago, somewhere in there. And uh, someone remembered that, <laughs> which, praise God, <laughs> and uh, it was a request that uh, we go back. And, uh, and so I'm going to bring this to you again. It's a bit of history, and uh, uh, we'll throw some, I throw some scriptures in with it, and we see God's hand in, in the life. Uh, of uh, the pilgrims and the Indians and how God takes care of His people. And so I'm going to be talking about, I've entitled it essentially, Indians, Pilgrims, and the Providence of God. There was, a, back in the 1600s, in the eastern shore of this country, there were Indian tribes. And there was a particular Indian who was called Squanto. And, and uh, his story is a remarkable story. And I want to share part of that with you because it's a testament to the providence of God. Squanto was a Patuxet Indian. He was born in a village which used to be located near the site of New Plymouth, which is in Massachusetts. Uh, as a young man... He encountered his first white men there on uh, those shores there in New Plymouth. And the year was somewhere between uh, 1605 to 1610, somewhere, somewhere in there. And the men had come on a trading ship. And he spent quite a lot of time with these men. He learned their language. He helped them in their dealings with other Indians. Um, they treated him very, very well. Uh, they gave him, you know, clothes to wear, you know. They had a good relationship. And when they were ready to leave, uh, they invited him along to go back to England with them. And he agreed. He agreed to go, even though his mother begged him not to go, you know, as mothers uh, do. Um, you know, it's not like he was getting on the Concorde and flying to England and would be back in a month. It took two, sometimes three months uh, on sea just to travel uh, to England or to hear from England. In England, he lived with the family of Charles Robbins, which was one of his friends on the ship. Uh, for a while, while he was there, I mean, he was uh, different, wasn't he? He was an Indian in England. And he became part of an Indian exhibit uh, at the stage there in London. But it didn't take all too long before Squanto became homesick. And his friend, Charles Robbins, did the best, uh, best he could to find him a way to return to America. He finally contacted Captain John Smith, who was planning a, a voyage to the New World, another one. Uh, and Smith agreed to take Squanto along. I mean, that would be pretty good. You have an Indian that speaks English and different tribal languages. You know, so wasn't, uh, I, think, I think it would, was a no-brainer, actually. Um, but uh, he agreed to take him along, and the year was 1614 when John Smith's expedition sailed for America. And there were two ships in this trip to America. One was commanded by John Smith and the other was commanded by Captain Thomas Hunt, which is important as we get along here. Uh, two different types of character between John Smith and Thomas Hunt. 
Squanto was to help John Smith for a short time, and then he he was uh, would be let loose. You know, would uh, be given leave. You would say to return to his village. So when the ships reached America, they separated. Squanto traveled with John Smith, interpreting. Uh, you know, when Indians were encountered. And uh, finally, Smith gave him permission to travel to his home. And on his way, Squanto encountered Captain Thomas Hunt. And he was tricked into going on board Thomas Hunt's ship. And there he was imprisoned, along with 20 other young Indians. All of them were taken to Spain, where they were sold as slaves. You see quite a bit of a difference between Captain John Smith and Captain Thomas Hunt. It happened that Squanto fell into the hands of a group of friars at a Catholic monastery. In fact, these friars were passing by and seen these Indians being sold and felt compassion for them and they purchased uh, these Indians and took them to the monastery to teach them uh, about Christ and their ways and such. That's essentially how the Squanto became a part of the monastery. And of course, they freed these Indians. They didn't keep them as slaves. <laughs> okay, they freed them, but they stayed at the, the monastery there. And they taught them about their religion, of course. And they were so convincing about Jesus that Squanto became a Christian. He became a Christian there. And uh, they obtained, it was those friars that uh, obtained a passage on the ship so that he could leave Spain. And it returned him to England. And the year was probably around 1616, I think. And from this point on, Squanto's one aim was to do whatever was necessary, not only to survive his ordeal, so he could return to his people. Um, he wanted to see his people again. Who wouldn't? I mean, he planned on seeing them before. He spent three years in England working as a servant in the home of John Slaney, still hoping to find a way back home so far away, thousands of miles over the ocean. He eventually asked Slaney to help him. And even though uh, John Slaney's family was very sorry to see Squanto go, he, he did locate a ship captain who was making a voyage to the New World. It was 1619, that was the year, when Squanto again arrived in North America. He interpreted for the captain in his dealings like he did before with local Indians, but was finally allowed to begin his journey home. He had been gone approximately 10 to 12 years. A lot can change in that time, can it? So when Squanto went to the place where his village should have been, he found no trace of his family and friends. He learned that recently a great sickness had struck his people, and every one of them had died. He'd crossed the Atlantic Ocean four times, <laughs> only to be terribly disappointed. He was the last of his tribe. Isn't that incredible? Squanto was invited to live in a nearby Wampanoag village under the name, uh, under the chief 
The chief's name was uh, Massasoit. Gosh, I can't get it out here. And there was, at that same time, about the time this was going on, there was a great persecution against God's people in England. And a congregation of separatists or Puritans uh, immigrated from English, uh, the English village of Scrooby, to Leiden, Holland. And after a few years, they began to desire a land of their own where they could live as Englishmen and preserve their faith. You know, they got there. Uh, that was about the only place they could go where they weren't being persecuted uh, by the uh, uh, Church of England or the Catholics. And even in Holland, they couldn't worship really the way they wanted to, and um, they couldn't be, quote, Englishmen. There, of course, you're in another country. So they desired a new land, and they prayed about this. And in Philippians 4 and verse 6, we read, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your, requ- your requests be made known unto God. It's a great principle, isn't it? Does God know what we need? Yes, He does know what we need, doesn't He? Do we know what we need? Most times we don't. (laughs) But we need to have that close relationship with the Lord. And prayer is is a part of communicating with God. We communicate with others. We communicate with each other. We communicate with our family members. If we're in the family of God, we communicate with God. And it's amazing that the Creator of all things wants to communicate with us. Isn't that incredible? Wants to have a dialogue with us. And here is what Paul's saying. Be careful for nothing. Come to the Lord with prayer and supplication, thanksgiving. Make our requests to God. He's our Father. And so these Puritans or separatists, you could call them, uh, they wanted to, to find a land where they could live as free men and have liberty of conscience, religious liberty. And they prayed. And news about the thriving English colony at Jamestown in Virginia led them to apply to the, the Virginia company for a patent where they could have their own land, see? And they were granted rights to found what was known as particular plantation, that's what they called it, to be located somewhere near the mouth of the Hudson River. Now, they were unable to finance the expedition themselves. But they got in with a a group of merchant capitalists who called themselves the Company of Adventurers. That's kind of neat. And they agreed to provide necessary finances in return for most of the profits earned by the colony in the first seven years of their operation. And these merchants chartered the Mayflower for the voyage to America. Now, that was the merchants. The group of separationists, the Leiden group, they bought a much smaller ship. It was called the Speedwell. And uh, 35 of the congregation sailed on it from the Netherlands to Southampton, England. And at Southampton, they met the rest of the future colonists who were non-separatists enlisted by the company to provide enough people for a working colony because they were making an investment, you see. And they wanted a return on their investment. 
And it's interesting that that group was referred to as strangers. The separatists called themselves saints. <laughs> so you had the saints and you had the strangers. Kind of like uh, uh, Israel and uh, the mixed multitude. <laughs> so numbering approximately 120 with 90 aboard the Mayflower, the pilgrims set sail for Southampton on August 15th. And after a few days sailing, the Speedwell was found to have leaks. The two captains turned back, and they, uh, they turned into Dartmouth for repairs. And it took them about two weeks. And they set out once more. But again, the Speedwell proved to be unseaworthy. And this time they put into Plymouth, where it was decided to abandon that ship. Some 20 would-be colonists were abandoned also since the Mayflower couldn't hold all of them. And I've often wondered, we know the story of those who came over on the Mayflower, but what about the ones who were abandoned? I'm just curious about that. On September 16th, the Mayflower set out alone for America. I think this was in 1620, I think is the year. Isaiah 65, 24 says, And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. What an awesome God we have, friends. Let me share this from the book, The Great Controversy, page 291. And speaking of this event, it says, In the midst of exile and hardship, their love and faith waxed strong. They trusted the Lord's promises, and He did not fail them in time of need. His angels were by their side to encourage and support them. And when God's hand seemed pointing them across the sea to a land where they might found for themselves a state and leave to their children the precious heritage of religious liberty, they went forward without shrinking in the path of providence. God had permitted trials to come upon His people to prepare them for the accomplishment of His gracious purpose toward them. Friends, that's a principle there. God allows us to come into trials that help prepare our character, help prepare us for the accomplishment of His gracious purpose. The church had been brought low that she might be exalted. God was about to display His power in her behalf to give to the world another evidence that He will not forsake those who trust in Him. He had overruled events to cause the wrath of Satan and the plots of evil men to advance His glory and to bring His people to a place of security. Persecution and exile were opening the way to freedom. Isn't that marvelous? Persecution and exile were opening the way to freedom. To freedom. The Mayflower left England with 102 passengers and a third of them were children. Of those passengers, three women were pregnant. And there was a crew of an unknown number. Uh, I've read uh, estimates of uh, the 25 to 30 other people. And while they were at sea, Elizabeth Hopkins, one of the women, gave birth to a son. And she named him Oceanus because they were on the ocean. And there's only one primary source account that I could find in existence, I believe, 
uh, that describes events that occurred while the Mayflower was at sea. It is written by William Bradford in his History of Plymouth Plantation. And I want to share that with you. Notice what he records about the voyage. I found it to be uh, rather interesting. It's kind of long. I'll share it with you, though. Um, for September 6th of that year, he wrote this. These troubles being blown over, and now all being compact together in one ship, they put to sea again with a prosperous wind, which continued diverse days together, which was some encouragement unto them. Yet according to the usual manner, many were afflicted with seasickness. And I may not omit here a special work of God's providence. Remember, Indians, pilgrims, and the providence of God. He says here, And I may not omit here a special work of God's providence. This is rather interesting. It says, There was a proud and very profane young man, one of the seamen, of a lusty, able body, which made him the more haughty. He would always be condemning the poor people in their sickness and cursing them daily with grievous execrations and did not let to tell them that he hoped to help to cast half of them overboard before they came to their journey's end and to make merry with what they had. And if he were by any gently reproved, he would curse and swear most bitterly. So they had this guy that basically almost sounds like he was possessed. And he would curse these people and say, you know, he's glad they were ill. He's looking forward to throwing most of them overboard to steal whatever they had, you know, and such. And when anybody would reprove him, he would curse and swear at him. And this is what uh, Bradford's telling us. And he goes on, he says, But it pleased God before they came half seas over to smite this young man with a grievous disease of which he died in a desperate manner. And so was himself the first that was thrown overboard. Thus his curses light on his own head, and it was an astonishment to all his fellows, for they noted it to be the just hand of God upon him. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, verses 12 to 14, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Fantastic, confident, hopeful words, inspiring words from Peter here. We see this played out in this incident in history as Bradford lays out. And Bradford continues, He says, after they had enjoyed fair winds and weather for a season, they were encountered many times with cross winds and met with many fierce storms with which the ship was shroudly shaken and her upper works made very leaky and one of the main beams in the midships was bowed and cracked which put them in some fear that the ship could not be able to perform the voyage. Colossians 4.2 tells us, Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Though we may not see God's hand at work in our life, friends, by faith we believe His word and trust He will keep it. Amen? So here they're getting pounded. And and Ellen White talks about this in a great controversy and says that the devil stirred up all these storms trying to destroy that ship from ever making it to this country. Bradford continues his account. He says, So some of the chief of the company, remember they had that cracked 
cracked main beam. They were afraid that the ship wouldn't last. He says, so some of the chief of the company, perceiving the mariners to fear the sufficiency of the ship, as appeared by their mutterings, they entered into serious consultation with the master and other officers of the ship to consider in time of the danger and rather to return than to cast themselves into a desperate and inevitable peril. So they go to the officers, the captain, and they say, can we turn back? Is it too late to turn back and, and maybe uh, make it to port and we can have repairs made? And truly, Bradford continues, there was great distraction and difference of opinion among the mariners themselves. Fain would they do what could be done for their wages' sake, being now half the seas over. They were over the halfway point. And on the other hand, they were loath to hazard their lives too desperately. So they were like, well, we're not going to make any money if we don't get to America, if we turn around. But then, we may not make it to America, you know, we may lose our lives. He goes on, but in examining of all opinions, the master and others affirmed they knew the ship to be strong and firm under water, and for the buckling of the main beam, there was a great iron screw the passengers brought out of Holland, which would raise the beam into his place. The which being done, the carpenter and master affirmed that with a post put under it, set firm in the lower deck and other ways bound, he would make it sufficient. I find it remarkable that God would have these uh, these group of people, these followers of His, have this great screw <laughs> that they would take. And of course they would use it for another purpose, maybe to build their own ship or whatever it may be when they get to America. But here it was provided. What a testimony for those on the ship, don't you think? Bradford goes on, he says, As for the decks and upper works, they would caulk them as well as they could. And though with the working of the ship they would not long keep staunch, yet there would otherwise be no great danger if they did not overpress her with sails. So they're going to have to slow down their trip a little bit. So they committed themselves to the will of God and resolved to proceed. In sundry of these storms, the winds were so fierce and the seas so high that they could not bear a knot of sail, but were forced to haul for diverse days together. In other words, they couldn't even put their sails up because the winds were so fierce, they could lose the masts, they could lose the sails, so they were out there floating, the hull of the ship just floating in the sea. And in one of them, as they thus lay at hull in a mighty storm, a lusty young man called John Howland, coming upon some occasion above the gratings, was with a seal of the ship thrown into the sea. But it pleased God that he caught hold of the topsail halyards, which hung overboard and ran out at length. So he gets thrown overboard, but he miraculously, by God's providence, he's able to grab hold of a halyard rope. But that rope was down in the ocean and back behind the ship a good ways. And Bradford says, yet, yet he held his hold, though he was sundry fathoms under the water. You just picture him, he, he's like uh, skiing, only he's under the water. You know. And he's under the water, till he was hauled up by the same rope to the brim of the water, and then with a boat hook and other means got into the ship again. 
and his life saved. And though he was something ill with it, yet he lived many years after and became a profitable member both in church and commonwealth. In all this voyage there died but one of the passengers, which was William Button, a youth, servant to Samuel Fuller. Samuel Fuller was a doctor. Uh, when they drew near the coast. After long beating at sea, they fell with that land which is called Cape Cod, the which being made and certainly known to be it, they were not a little joyful. Being thus arrived in a good harbor and brought safe to land, they fell upon their knees and blessed the God of heaven who had brought them over the vast and furious ocean and delivered them from all the perils and miseries thereof again to set their feet on the firm and stable earth, their proper element. That's from William Bradford, his account of their trip over the sea. Second Chronicles 16 and verse 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. The Mayflower crew sighted land off Cape Cod on November 9, 1620. And first landfall was made two days later. The voyage from Plymouth, England to Plymouth Harbor is about 2,750 miles. And the Mayflower voyage was a difficult one. The ship, due to delays, remember, by the Speedwell, they crossed the Atlantic later than planned in the autumn, and they met with severe storms. I mean, that's, you get into the winter, and you get these storms. Of course, the devil, uh, inspiration tells us, stirred them up even much more. took them 66 days, 66 days to go from uh, Plymouth Harbor, uh, or from Plymouth, England, to Plymouth Harbor. And after the Mayflower had arrived and was anchored in Provincetown Harbor off the tip of Cape Cod, that uh, other lady... Susanna White gave birth to a son, which she named Peregrine, which means one who has made a journey. Would you like to have the name Peregrine? <laughs> Betty had a nickname. The Mayflower then sailed across the bay and anchored in Plymouth Harbor. And there, Mary Allerton gave birth to a stillborn son. Sad to say. And like I said before, one passenger died while on the Mayflower, and his name was William Button. He was the apprentice to Dr. Samuel Fuller. But the sad part about it is he died three days before they, uh, before they sighted land. And that's something. Um, El, you know, James White, I read uh, uh, in his, he wrote a little pamphlet called His Life Incidents. And uh, on page 9 he said that his father was descended from one of the pilgrims who came on the ship Mayflower and landed in Plymouth Rock in uh, 1620. I just found that to be rather interesting. You know, James White. It's also interesting to note that a few years later, the Mayflower uh, was classified as ruined by the High Court of Admiralty there in England, and it was disassembled for its wood, which was a high demand in England at uh, that time. So the ship was completely dismantled. But here you have the pilgrims. They arrive and they're in a terrible predicament. Because of their delays, they arrive here in, in 
late fall, November into December. Winter was upon them, and they were in terrible need of shelter, provisions, and such. You know, God in prayer became their strength. Two months after settling at Plymouth, an Indian visiting from Maine, up around the Maine area, by the name of Samoset, walked right into the middle of that colony while they were building it and welcomed the pilgrims in the English language. Can you imagine the surprise? Jeremiah 29, verse 12 and 13, Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. God was hearing their prayers, wasn't He? He'd been with them all the way across the ocean. He's with them now. And somewhat fearful and somewhat astounded, the pilgrims and, and that Indian, Samoset, talked all day and night. And Squanto lived not far away, you see. Squanto lived in that nearby Wampanoag village until the Indians heard about the white men who were building a town near the place where his tribe, his tribe's village used to be. And when Samoset came back from his visit to the newcomers, he asked Squanto, hey, you want to go with me? And that was March 22nd. It was in the spring, 1621. And so Samoset and Squanto spoke to the settlers for a while, and then Chief Massasoit came in for a meeting. And the pilgrims and the Indians worked out an agreement that uh, they would follow the two groups that allow them to exist peacefully. It essentially said that uh, the Wampanoag and the pilgrims wouldn't harm each other, and they would also form what you would call a military alliance as well, such as if one was attacked, the other would come to their aid. And when the rest of the Indians left New Plymouth, Squanto decided to stay with the pilgrims. He helped them build warm, warmer houses, you know, an improvement over those that they'd lived through the first winter. He taught them when to plant their corn crop. He said, watch the leaves on the trees and when they were the size of a squirrel's ears, you need to plant your corn. Then he showed them how to plant the corn, or as they referred to it as maize. You plant it in a hill. They dig a, a pits and a, a little hole in the ground there and you put several seeds in that with a, a fish for fertilizer and that would help the corn grow more rapidly. He even showed them how to fish for that particular fish. <laughs> and without his help, there wouldn't have been, uh, as recorded, 20 acres of corn produced that year. Later, he taught the women how to cook the corn, the maize, among many other things. Friends, we read in 2 Corinthians 9 and uh, verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. As it is written, He hath dispersed abroad, He hath given to the poor, His righteousness remaineth forever. Now He that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. God's providence 
was with these followers of God. Isn't it remarkable that God was working, God is always working to draw people unto Himself. And that this Indian named Squanto <laughs> travels to England and back. Travels to Spain, is sold as a slave, purchased, taught about Jesus, becomes a Christian. Years later, travels back to America for just such a time as this. God had prepared him for a purpose, hadn't he? As he does with all his people. What people call the first Thanksgiving, that is the, the pilgrims' celebration of their harvest there in 1621, wasn't a Thanksgiving to them, per se, as, as we think. You see, to the pilgrims, a Thanksgiving celebration was a formal religious service. And nowhere in the writings about that first year in Plymouth can you find any mention of, of such a religious service. They do mention, though, see, a three-day feast. And uh, most historians believe it was a harvest home celebration, which is what they would have in England to celebrate the gathering in of the crops. So they had a harvest celebration. And it's not that they weren't thankful to God. That's what it was all about, you see. There were about 140 people, 90 Indian men, about 50 pilgrims at the three-day celebration. There were only four adult women who had survived that first winter. Um, and they probably were in charge of all the cooking. you imagine? <laughs> the date was sometime between the end of September there, September 21st to November 9th, 1621. And on the menu were things that they had caught or hunted for or grown. Sea bass, cod, duck, geese, wild turkey, cornmeal. The Indians brought five deer uh, to the celebration. They also had vegetables, fruit was a part of the meal. They had games. The Indians taught them certain of the games they had and vice versa. Singing, uh, some dancing. Most of that was part of that celebration. Our scripture reading says it so well, friends. Our scripture reading for today, Psalm 69, verse 30. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify Him with thanksgiving. And so they had this three-day celebration between themselves. History records that it was a one-time celebration, though. Even though they were at peace, the Indians and pilgrims, for a few years. Unfortunately, in later years... There was a lot of bloodshed between the settlers and the natives. In fact, there were some disagreements at that time. Squanto died while helping to achieve a peace between the pilgrims and the Indians again. Some historians have speculated that the Wampanoag tribe poisoned Squanto because they believed he had been disloyal to the Sachem. That means... Uh, Sometimes it's called the Sagamore. It just means supreme chief. Uh, in our area here in Indiana, they, uh, they give awards out to certain citizens that are found to be great leaders, and they're called the Sagamore of the Wabash, <laughs> the supreme chief 
you know, it's a it's an award. Uh, my previous employer, he he was a Sagamore of the Wabash, and uh, but that's what they call him a Sachem or a Sagamore, just means supreme chief. They thought he. That's what some historians think, because in the manner way he died, you see, he died a few days after becoming ill. There in 1622, he was only I think. 36 years old. And he was buried in an unmarked grave there. But because of his efforts, there was peace again between the two groups that lasted for another 50 years. Governor William Bradford in Bradford's History of the English Settlement, I want you to know what he wrote regarding Squanto's death. He said, here, and that was in Manamoic Bay, Here, Squanto fell ill of Indian fever, bleeding much at the nose, which the Indians take as a symptom of death, and within a few days he died. He begged the governor to pray for him that he might go to the Englishman's God in heaven and bequeathed several of his things to his English friends as remembrances. His death was a great loss. There was a strong bond that Squanto had between him the Indians, and the Englishmen. And he was a Christian. Friends, if found faithful, we may meet Squanto on that day when Jesus returns. Won't that be something? So many testimonies of God's saving grace will be heard when we all go home that day. So many praises and songs of thanksgiving will be shouted and and sung on that great day. Are you preparing for that day? Now is the time, beloved. Tomorrow may just be too late. Now is the time. The first Thanksgiving proclamation in our country was made on June 20th in 1676. The Governing Council of Charlestown, Massachusetts held a meeting to determine how best to express thanks for the good fortune that had seen their community securely established. And by unanimous vote, they instructed Edward Ross and the clerk to proclaim June 29th as a day of thanksgiving. That was the first in our country. It wasn't even a country yet. (laughs) October of 1777 marked the first time that all 13 colonies joined in a thanksgiving celebration. It also commemorated the patriotic victory over the British at Saratoga during the Revolutionary War. But that was a one-time affair for the colonies until the year 1789. Twelve years later, when George Washington proclaimed a national day of Thanksgiving. And friends, I'll tell you something. To those that say that this nation was not founded on Christian principles. Now I'm not, I'm not saying as a Christian nation because it was not. People get confused by that. It's a nation of religious liberty. But it was founded upon biblical principles. Christian principles. And to those who think that it wasn't, I say read the very words of the founders themselves. And read them unedited, without commentary. If that doesn't open your eyes, then I think you wish them to remain closed. You're in denial as to the influence God had in founding this land of freedom. 
I'm going to read George Washington's 1789 Thanksgiving proclamation. And I want you to listen to these words penned by the first president of the United States, and you tell me whether this nation was founded on Christian principles and these, this man himself was a follower of the Creator God. <clears throat> by his own words, you know, back when presidents wrote speeches themselves. <laughs> Notice what he says. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God. Did you catch that? George Washington says it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God. To obey His will. To be grateful for His benefits and humbly to implore His protection and favor. And whereas both houses of Congress have, by their joint committee, requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer. Wow. Today, they would have probably been impeaching George Washington for saying this. to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many and signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November next, to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be, that we may then all unite in rendering unto him, get that? That we may all unite in rendering under unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection of the people of this country previous to their becoming a nation. For the signal and manifold mercies and favorable interpositions of his providence in the course and conclusion of the late war, for the great degree of tranquility, union, and plenty which we have since enjoyed, for the peaceable and rational manner in which we have been enabled to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness, and particularly the national one now lately instituted for the civil and religious liberty with which we are blessed and the means we have of acquiring and dif dis excuse me, diffusing useful knowledge. And in general, for all the great and various favors which he has been pleased to confer upon us, and also that we may then unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of nations and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions to enable us all, whether in public or private stations, to perform our several and relative duties properly and punctually, to render our national government a blessing to all the people by constantly being a government of wise, just, and constitutional laws, 
discreetly and faithfully executed and obeyed. Wow. <laughs> Lessons can be learned today, huh? To protect and guide all sovereigns and nations, especially such as have shown kindness to us, and to bless them with good governments, peace, and concord. To promote the knowledge and practice of true religion. Get this, friends. To promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue and the increase of science among them and us and generally to grant unto all mankind such a degree of temporal prosperity as he alone knows to be best. Given under my hand at the city of New York the third day of October, 1789, 89 signed George Washington. How far as a country have we fallen? It's remarkable. Friends, when you read, and that's just not the only thing. If you read the writings in the diaries of Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Franklin and you get in Madison even, and you look at the Constitution, you look at the Declaration, you can't get past. I mean, is there any doubt as to the influence the Almighty had in the life of George Washington here? In reading the con in reading this? Remarkable words from the heart of the first president of the United States. As I said, incredible how far we've fallen as a nation. And as he stated in his proclamation, to promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue. Yeah, that was Satan's first attack on this country, wasn't it? It's amazing. Well, in 1863, President Abraham Lincoln proclaimed the last Thursday in November as a National Day of Thanksgiving. And every president proclaimed Thanksgiving after Lincoln. They would make it, you know, come out with a proclamation every year. And the date was changed a couple of times, most notably, uh, and most recently, by Franklin Roosevelt, who set it up one week to uh, the next to last Thursday in order to create a longer Christmas shopping season. Yeah. But the public were so upset about that and so against it that he moved it back to the original date two years later. <laughs> that wasn't a good political move for him. In 1941, Thanksgiving was finally sanctioned by Congress as a legal holiday on the fourth Thursday in November, and it's remained that way ever since. Friends, I hope by sharing this with you that you can see and you can gain confidence in God's Word and trust in His Word, that God cares for His people, that God's in control, God lays out plans and sets things in order for those plans to be established. That years before the pilgrims, as they were persecuted, He made plans for their safety. That He made plans, put them into action, had things ready for them, had a land prepared for them. And had someone here to help. 
we are to remember our Creator in all things and offer Him thanksgiving, not just one day a year, but every day and multiple times during that day. It's one reason why I opened the floor up in our divine worship service for praise, praises, praise reports, thanksgiving. Sad to say, I'm, I don't believe we praise God enough. I just don't think we do. We get bogged down by the things that we see around us and, and maybe we become a bit too disheartened. God doesn't quit on us and He works for our benefit every moment. Our hearts should always be singing praises to God. Especially when you come to the cross and you see the love that God has for us. Amen. The psalmist says in Psalms 95, beginning with verse 1, O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all God. In His hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is His also. The sea is His, and He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, and the sheep of His hand. Beloved, one day soon we will see Jesus face to face. And we will stand with the redeemed of all ages on the sea of glass, rejoicing in salvation and giving praise and thanksgiving to God. That starts now, doesn't it? We're not to wait till then. That starts now. But John saw that day he recorded it in Revelation 7, beginning with verse 9. John says, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Those palms represent victory. Robes of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. They've gained the victory. Verse 10, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne, and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And that day when Jesus meets each one of us personally and places the crown on our head. You know, we're told He'll finish with Adam. And then Adam, representing us all, will take off His crown and throw it at the feet of Jesus, as we all will do, and we will kneel and worship Jesus, our Savior. There are not words to describe that day.
John does the best that he can. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might and on and on and on. Friends, it starts today though. Every day. Let us offer our mighty God the thanksgiving that He alone deserves. I hope that this has been an encouragement to you and that you will share this with your family. When you gather together on Thanksgiving Day, that you remember why. It's not for the feast. It's not for you know football and games and fun. That can be part of it. It's a, it's a celebration. But what's at the heart of it? Let's pour out our thanksgiving unto God not only provides for our needs here and provides more many times but he has given us eternal life through Christ the greatest gift that we can have we owe him our thanks isn't that true let's pray father in heaven we again thank you so very very much for your holy word and for your promises we thank you very much for Jesus your son who you gave to humanity. We thank you very much for the Sabbath day that you also gave to humanity, that we may come and remember that you are our Creator, that we can remember your love toward us and giving your Son and providing for our needs. It's remarkable, your love. There really is nothing like it. Uniqueness teaches us that you are God. Now, Father, we accept your love, we accept your gifts, and we pray that you forgive us where we fail thee. We not share these gifts with others, and we choose our own way too often. Father, we praise your holy name that you are also a just and forgiving God and a merciful God. That you've promised that through Christ we may be forgiven. Please forgive us, build us with confidence, and strengthen our faith that we may hasten the Savior's return. Prepare us, Lord, for His return, and help us to reach other souls for the kingdom before it's too late. We pray this in Jesus' name, who's so worthy. Thank you for hearing it, Lord. Amen.